Law Matters Live Show is created to give law enforcement a voice rather than a soundbite. And in doing so, we have also given you a voice with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, the legal community, government officials, and our military. Join us every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. You will hear truthful, up-to-date information that's valuable to you and your family. Please show your support by going to lawmatters1030.org and join our 1030 Challenge. Your contributions do make a difference. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for listening to Law Matters and tuning in today. After two weeks off, this is really weird to be in the studio right now, but I'm happy to be here and in the studio because it's that time of year again. We have um, the nicest person you ever want to meet, actually. No, not you, John. (laughs) Um, An IRS special agent, Brian Watson. You don't want to meet him, actually. The one you want to meet is actually in the studio. Brian's on the phone is Mark Barnes, the owner of Copper Canyon Tax Services. He's an enrolled agent. And between Brian and Mark, we're going to learn what we can and cannot do this year with our taxes. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? How was your holiday? How are you feeling, Brian? I'm feeling much better. Good. I'm at home in my COVID isolation unit, which is the home office. The home office. But I've had, <laughs> I had, I didn't even think I had COVID. I had a really bad cold, coughing and sneezing and things like that, but I tested positive, so I've been just laying low. But thank you for asking. I'm feeling great. Good. Glad to hear it. And Mark's feeling great, too. I can tell by looking at him. <laughs> well... <laughs> January does lead into my busiest couple of months out of the year, so yeah, and mixed it, emotions. It, I have it, mixed it, emotions <laughs> about this time of year. It's fun, you know it, you love it. <laughs> okay, I wanna I wanna get into this because there's a lot to cover, and you know I I was just telling Mark before the show started, I got a phone call from a live person. Yeah, it wasn't a robot who told me that they could prepare my taxes for me. All they needed was my social security number and how much money did you make last year? So what do you, what do you do to that? Brian? Wow. That, that is pretty brazen. I've, uh, I've actually never heard of anybody trying to drum up business for a tax preparation business by phone. Usually it's a word of mouth thing, but, uh, I would have just hung up on that person immediately. That just, that just. I, well, I would go to. Yeah, what just, did you tell just, that person, Sherry? Actually, I said thank you very much, but I'm covered, and I hung up. But wow, I, well, I think they're just trying to get people in the door, and they're just trying to get. I mean, that's just math. Oh, she didn't name marketing. a service. She didn't name a company. It wasn't like you know. This is Herbie Schwartz from ABC Tax Service. It was, I can do this. So, <laughs> Mark, well, yeah, what do you the, say? The, 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 oh, sorry. Let's cover the legal aspect of this. Forget all the other craziness and, like, that's a horrible way to try to recruit business. You cannot prepare a tax return until you have a W-2 or until you have exhausted all attempts at obtaining a W-2 and then filing a substitute W-2 when you file your tax return. 
You cannot walk in somewhere with a pay stub and get a tax return completed. You cannot certainly estimate what you think you made last year and have somebody prepare a tax return. These are all items that are listed in Circular 230, and that is against our ethical code. You just you cannot do that. So this person wasn't being very ethical. <sighs> Amongst other things. Okay. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to get it out there because if I'm sure I'm not the only person this person called. I mean, they probably just, well, they don't have phone books anymore either, do they? But they're probably just random calling people and saying, hey, I can do this for you. You know, give me your information. So I'm sure that was a, a phishing phone call. Next thing you know, right. your bank and account's the, empty. The one thing to point out there, Sherry, is that person may not even be a tax return preparer. It may be someone just trying to identities, get your name, social security number, some tax information, and then do something malicious with that said information. Yeah, and when I looked at the the phone number, the phone number wasn't local. It was it was um, restricted or, you know, unavailable or whatever the term was. So, yeah, be careful. If somebody's calling you about your taxes, hang up. Just hang up. Okay. I want to talk about some of these other phishing scams. What's going on, Brian? So every year, phishing is our number one on the IRS Dirty Dozen, and I get them in my own email inbox or on my personal phone as text messages. And what I like to do is print them out or save them as PDFs and use them to share when I do radio shows. And the the craziest one I got I received was – Back in October, um, did you know Warren Buffett is trying to give me $2.5 million, Sherry? I'm your new best uh, friend. Yeah, and he basically said, congratulations, my name is Warren Buffett, American businessman. Um, I want to give away my money. All you have to do is go to this, um, you know, go to this website to confirm. And what he used, or what these people used to verify it was Warren Buffett's Wikipedia page. And, I mean, it's just so ridiculous on the surface, but you figure one or two people probably said, oh, maybe this is real and I'll take the money. Um, The second one I wanted to share was the BMW lottery department, basically saying I want a BMW. I just have to provide a bunch of information. So, once again, it's a phishing scheme trying to get your personal information, trying to get you to eventually pay money is what they're trying to do. They're going to get you to pay a tax or a fee. And then the third one that I keep getting all the time on my cell phone is this free gift from AT&T. But if you look at the really long um, website that it links you to, the hyperlink, it has nothing to do with AT&T. And they keep sending this saying, "You thank you for paying your bill. Here's a little something for you. And they're just hoping someone will click on it and start providing personal information. So that's – these – Email phishing and text phishing schemes are the highest I've seen in my career. The last five years has been out of control. And I would the, the one warning I would give everyone out there to prevent ID theft and other scams is just, just to delete these emails. Put them in your spam folder and just block the number if you can. Yeah, if they provide a number, absolutely block the number. Is there a way of reporting some of this stuff? I mean, is there, you know, a team of people that are going after these dirtbags? Um, the problem is, is 
it's 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 nearly impossible. There's the, so many the of FBI, them. Yeah, the FBI has their ic3.gov, which is basically a clearinghouse for online scams and phone scams and email scams. But that's not how that's not how we're going to stop these people. These schemes are going to be stopped by just educating the public and telling your family and friends, neighbors, just don't click on these links. They they work for a reason because people respond to them. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but there are still some people out there who believe this is a, a true thing, and you know they're going to either get help or they're going to make money or they've won a fabulous prize. And unfortunately, people are losing money hand over fist because of it. So what um, talking about tax returns, what red flags do you have when somebody is trying to hire a true tax preparer? And you've got this. If you don't have somebody like Mark in your life, what do you do? So if you're looking for someone new, you know, ask around, ask family and friends. Who do you use as a return preparer? Who do you trust? Who's got a reputation in the community? So someone like Mark is available year-round. He has a reputation in the community. If there were bad things about someone like Mark, it would show up online. People would <laughs> make comments. But the, the people that uh, – and then the other thing I want to point out, Sherry, is the vast majority of tax return preparers in this country are honest and ethical, do a great job. But here are the three red flags that we see all the time with the shady return preparers. Any return preparer who bases their fee on a percentage of your refund, it's a built-in incentive for them to pad your return with false deductions, false credits, and things like that. Any return preparer who hasn't even seen your personal information and is promising you a large refund, how do they know that? They're just trying to get you in the door. And then this is the third one, and it's become real prevalent in the last few years. Tax return preparers who create a fake business on your tax return with a loss. And the reason behind that is they create this loss to basically offset your W-2 income. So it brings your, it lowers the taxes you have to pay. And we're seeing this all the time, just some random little business that doesn't exist. So the key is if you're going to a new return preparer, look over that return line by line, page by page. And if you see a business on there, it usually is on what we call the Schedule C. Um, and it's basically where you would report income and expense from a, a small business. If you see a business you don't recommend, you need to walk out of that place and go find a new tax repair right away. Okay, if let's think about this business. If somebody signs that tax return and they didn't look at it, is it? And now there's this fake business on there. They're just trusting their tax preparer. They're liable, are they not? You you are. Even if you know. So more than half of all Americans go to a paid preparer. And but just because you go to a paid preparer doesn't mean you're off the hook. You are still responsible for what's on that return. That's why it's so important to go to a tax return preparer who will explain the return to you before it's even filed. That way they get your approval, you're good with everything, everything makes sense, all your questions have been answered, and then then they'll also give you a copy of it, either print out a hard copy or send you a PDF version so that you could save for the future. But yes, 
all, even if you go to a paid return preparer, you are still ultimately responsible for everything on that tax return. When you sign the tax return, whether you're signing the bottom of the 1040 because you're mailing it in, or you're signing the 8879 because it's being electronically filed, the words right on the form say that you're signing this under penalty of perjury, that this return is true and correct to the best of your knowledge. And if you didn't look at it, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You're screwed. You, you signed something that you didn't even look over or glance at or give any consideration to. And if it's audited, it doesn't come back to me. It comes back to the, the taxpayer. So if you went somewhere and they promised you a huge refund and you signed off on it, you went and had a great time with that money, and now the IRS says, we have some questions, it's not the tax preparer's fault. I mean, I'm not letting them off the hook. They shouldn't be doing that to begin with. But as the person who's responsible for the tax on the bottom line, it comes back to you and you'll be the one paying the interest and penalties and probably on an installment agreement and paying the IRS for months or years. If somebody is, you know, found to sign a fraudulent tax um, return that was created by a preparer, does the IRS look at other tax returns prepared by that person? Do they have the ability to find out who else they've done taxes for to see if this is um, uh, his M.O. or her M.O.? Absolutely, Sherry. So we we spend a pretty good amount of time investigating uh, return preparers that are the ones who are taking advantage of people. And we're looking for schemes. What we're looking for is return preparers who prepare dozens, if not hundreds, or even sometimes thousands of bad returns. And we're looking for patterns. So we have employees in our scheme development centers who can look at the aggregate of all the returns filed by one return preparer. And we look for the same numbers, certain percentages, certain credits being used all the time, and we focus our energy on the really egregious ones. And um, what we try to do is prove that they're doing it on purpose, and then we look at the their clients who are being taken advantage of as witnesses, and we reach out to them, ask what they provided, how they interacted with the return preparer, and we use them as witnesses um, against the return preparer. And a lot of times these return preparers, they get prosecuted. Sometimes they go to jail. Sometimes they get probation. But a lot of times at the end, they end up having to pay a lot of, um, they have to pay the tax loss to the government. So if you're investigating the preparer, do the clients end up in um, trouble as well? So it, it depends on the situation. Most of the time, no. Like I just mentioned, most of the time the clients, they still have to pay the interest and penalties that Mark just referenced, but they're not charged criminally. We're looking at them as victims, um, and we really go after the person who did the biggest damage, the person who filed the hundreds of bad returns. The clients, they're victims, pay a little interest and penalties, everything will get cleared up, treat them as a witness, they help us out, we get them straightened out as well. But no, we, we're not looking to, to go out and charge everybody involved in that, you know, technically was it a bad return they signed? Yeah, but 
that's just there's no there's no criminal intent there. They we look at them as a victim. Okay. Otherwise, they're not well. That'd be a good way to get witnesses, though, because you're. <laughs> hey, I won't charge you if you testify against this bad person. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. But you know, it's, we the way we explain it to them is, you know, the type of cases we're looking for. It, it has to be intent to go to before a jury. It has to be a really egregious case. Charging someone for a couple bad returns, you know, we would never do that. It's just we don't have the time. And it's it's just there's no justice in that. Okay, I have to ask you about a notice that came out a week or so ago. Um, You are required to claim on your taxes all the illegal funds that you've earned. Uh, I I was thinking about the tax return, the the um, format for filing your taxes and there was no place on there where you could list, you know, I'm a your local bank robber or, you know, I, I career is smash and grab. I launder money for a living or fence stolen property. How are you going to move forward with this? Well, yeah. So I, <laughs> I saw the news stories on this, Sherry, and someone posted on Twitter some screenshots from Publication 17. Publication 17 is a is an IRS publication that kind of is, it's a one-stop shop on everything taxes. It's about a couple hundred pages. And there actually is a section on stolen property. And it says, if you steal property, you must report its fair market value in your income in the year you steal it, unless you return it to its rightful owner. And then someone also screenshotted the illegal activities, income from illegal activities, such as money from dealing drugs must be included, you know, on, in your 1040. So that got on, that went out on Twitter and it just blew up. And it was was kind of crazy. (laughs) But the whole point is this, and Mark can back me up on this, is generally with our, our, the Internal Revenue Code, everything is taxable unless there's an exception. And even illegal money is is, uh, taxable. Well, that's how you got Al Capone. Yeah, so I'll ask Mark this question. Mark, where would you, uh, where would you report, um, Stolen property. property on a 1040. So <laughs> this thing is driving me crazy. And like most things on the Internet, it was amusing the first time. And then like a thousand people sent it to me and it was no longer amusing. amusing. So if you go to Internal Revenue Code Section 61, it specifies that all income is taxable unless there's another provision that excludes that. So. Illegal activity is not specifically excluded under the law. So now we really need to get into how you're coming into this money. Is this something that was a one-off situation, or is this something that you do for a living? If you're a drug dealer, you need to report that income, but you probably need to report it as business income. I mean, that creates a whole ton of other problems. Yeah, because you have to have uh, a W-2 or a 1099. You don't have to, but, you know, it's the same with, like, prostitution. If But, no, business income is separate. You report your business income on Schedule C, and this is the form Brian was talking about before where people make up a business. Um, If you went in and you said, hey stick them up or give me your wallet and that happened once that would be other income you'd report that <laughs> we call it line 21 it used to be line 21 on the 1040 <laughs> and that's where you'd report other income but if you're in the business of doing something illegal you probably should consider putting it on schedule c as business income 
And this is nothing new. Self-employed. You're self-employed <laughs> as a drug dealer or a prostitute or whatever it is that's happening. Um, but yeah, this is how this is how Al Capone got caught. He didn't get caught for any of the other stuff. He got caught for tax evasion for not reporting the income that he was obtaining illegally. Yeah. What about a hitman? Same thing. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So all you illegal bad actors out there, pay attention. So, Brian, tell us some of the investigations you've done with some criminals. So some some of our uh, criminal cases recently um, involving taxes or money laundering. Uh, back in November, a man named Jermaine Crick out of Scottsdale was Im- indicted on charges of false claims, theft of government funds, and aggravated ID theft. He made false claims upon the government, the United States, by filing tax returns in his own name and others that falsely claimed big withholdings. So basically, this was not an accident. He, for a three-year period, uh, 2015 to 2017, he arranged for the filing of at least 36 fraudulent tax returns seeking a combined refund amount of at least $989,000. So He's at this point going to have a, he has a trial date. He'll get set for trial. But these are the type of cases that we work with at IRS criminal investigation. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't someone who went to a return preparer and there was something on there that wasn't accurate. He was involved with 36 returns claiming almost a million dollars with basically false information. It was the false withholdings that was put on there. And then we had a similar case. Um, out of surprise, and this was uh, an, in a, a couple, Anthony and Shakina Williams, charged in September. They were charged with conspiracy, false claims, mail fraud, and money laundering. They devised a scheme to defraud the IRS using trusts, trusts and filing false tax returns to get large treasury checks. One of them was almost a $600,000 check. So there are constantly people trying to use trying to steal from the government by filing false tax returns, either false, you know, these crazy withholdings or some false information like trust that don't exist. So that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with. Um, so those were both cases that were indicted. And the last one I want to talk about here is a this Jamaican fraud scheme that's been going on in the United States. We have an elder fraud task force at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Tucson. And we had an individual named Joseph Batts. He's out of New Jersey, but he was charged here. He was sentenced to 70 months in prison back in November. He was the guy. He wasn't the one actually making the calls, but he was the one that provided the lead lists and the scripts and template letters and told people how to conduct the scheme. And the people that were actually making the calls were calling out of Jamaica, telling people they'd won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. And they really targeted 80 people that are 80 years old plus. So they and replaced the Ed McMahon with a Jamaican? Yeah, well, it's 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 awful. And I I I I stepped into one of the trials uh, last year and just watched for a little bit. They had they flew in a lady from I believe it was Pennsylvania, and she talked about how she lost basically her life savings to one of these phone scammers telling her that she'd won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, and. These people don't just take $1,000 from you. They just keep milking you until you've lost everything. They take it all? They say that 
they say you have to pay some taxes or some sort of fees, and it, it's ridiculous. But anyways, the good news is the government's charged about 10 individuals here in Tucson through this elder fraud task force, and we've already had people convicted at trial, sentenced, indicted, and we're just kind of moving through the process. So it's that's some good news. But the key is if anyone calls you, telling you you've won this sweepstakes, just hang up on them because it's it's a scam. Okay, is that Elder Fraud Task Force with the IRS? It's with the US Attorney's Office. They're the one they're the ones who are prosecuting it, but it's we have multiple agencies on it. You have IRS and HSI and FBI and US Postal Inspectors. Everyone's contributing to it. It's it's been very successful in uh, stopping a lot of this fraud, but also educating people as well. Very cool. I'm glad to hear that. When did they start doing that? That's that's not a something that's been around for a long time, is it? No, I, I would say the last two or three years. Yeah. You know, and they I also, heard of it. Yeah, and the other thing they're doing as well is the money the money mule initiative um, for the last two years led by the U.S. Attorney's Office, plus all the agencies I just mentioned, have made a concerted effort to go out into the public and interview people and warn them that we believe they may be money mules. A lot of these people are victims of romance scams or work-at-home scams. And we're basically saying, look, what you're doing is illegal, moving money at the direction of someone else. We, we don't want to charge you because we think you're a victim, but what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. And it's, it's been very interesting. I have not gone out on any of the interviews, but I had someone come back and tell me, yeah, we went and spoke to this lady, but she said, no, I'm going to keep doing it. That's my boyfriend. I'm going to help him out. And he's a fake Internet boyfriend. So it can be very frustrating, but we have, we, have, we believe, stopped a lot of this um, illegal activity just by warning people that they're involved in this money, being a money mule. Yeah. I know somebody who was victimized by that. That's pretty bad. In fact, I know two people now that I think of it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. Hi, this is Sherry asking you to tune in to Law Matters Live Show every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, we talk with Crime Stoppers International and our local reps with 88 Crime. Get your questions ready and call in at 790-2040. Please support the Law Matters 1030 Challenge at lawmatters1030.org. All of us at Law Matters, thank you for your support. Your generosity truly makes a difference. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. Saving lives means staying informed. Knowing the dangers of using counterfeit prescription pills can help those you care about and keep our community safe. 
As a parent, educator, neighbor, or friend, we all play a role in building safe and healthy futures for ourselves and our loved ones. Do your part. Take the first step today. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com to access education, prevention, and treatment resources. Counterfeit prescription pills laced with fentanyl are deadly. Be their protector. Be informed. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com. This is Nathan Chabin, producer for Law Matters. I have a goal to reach, and I need your help. I want to put the DEA out of business. That's right, the Drug Enforcement Agency. If you have an addiction problem or know someone who does, please reach out to lawmatters1030.org and click the DEA tab for more information. Reaching out is the first step. We have the resources if you have the will. You can beat this demon and help me put the Drug Enforcement Agency out of business. Thanks for staying with us. Our guests today are Mark Barnes from Copper Canyon Tax Service and IRS Special Agent Brian Watson. And I want to ask you about, we just heard an ad earlier about the um, upside card. And I know you researched the card. Let's talk a little bit about it. Sure. So there's lots of apps that are popping up, and this one is claiming that if you use this app when you purchase gas, you're going to get paid all this cash back every time you buy gas. Uh, step one is I did the math on it, and you'd have to basically be a professional driver and drive like 12 to 14 hours a day to get the kind of compensation that they were talking about. Um, but I think the important piece here is the girl in the advertisement is claiming that she makes two to three hundred dollars a month from using this app. And this comes back to our last session where Internal Revenue Code Section 61 says that all income is taxable unless it's specifically excluded. And I can assure you there's no section that says money from apps is excluded from taxation. So this is an example of somebody that has other income that needs to be reported on their tax return. And you need to pay tax on that two to $300 a month that you're making from that app. Okay. How does that app work? I mean, it, you know, is this a pyramid scheme or is this... So you're, you're supposed to install it and there's participating gas stations. And so I believe when you go to the gas station and fill up. You're supposed to take a picture of the receipt, and then it converts that into a digital format, and that's how you get paid. But in order to get paid the big money, yeah, you have to recruit your friends. You have to get more people to use the app, and then you start to receive rewards off of their shopping as well. And this is how apps spread. This is how they get visibility is by people spreading them throughout the community with their you know, friends and family. Um it's not illegal. It's questionable. It's, it's it's the way of the world now. Everybody's got an app for something, and really, at the end of the day, just like Facebook, they're tracking what you do, they're tracking what you look at, they're tracking what you shop for, so that they can target advertising and all the other stuff that goes in. Because data collection is more important than the two to three hundred dollars a month that they're paying out. If they can tell companies. We can run advertising and target it to the right user because we've collected all of this data. So when you use any of these apps, they're spying on you. Any app. Any app. Any app. So, you know, you go into a restaurant, they want you to download their menu onto your phone. I don't want your menu on my phone. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, hand me a menu. Okay. 
when I told everybody you guys were coming on, the one thing they really wanted to know about is what about the stimulus checks? You know, how does this pertain? What do we do? And then the other part was the um, child tax credits. Sure. Let's talk about something more fun than people going to jail, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Right now, headed to a mailbox near you are two IRS forms. These are very important. And uh, the next statement, take this in the least political way that you can. A year ago... People were receiving letters for stimulus payments, but rather than saying that it was coming from the Department of the Treasury, the letter said it came from the office of Donald J. Trump, and people threw them away, and there are millions of tax returns that are still on hold from last year where people have not received their refunds because their stimulus payments were not properly reported. So if you get an IRS letter this week, and the two letters are letter 6475 and letter 6419, please keep those. Those are necessary to complete your tax return. So letter 6475 is going to list out the amount of your third stimulus payment, which was paid out last March. How this works is... When your tax return is prepared, a calculation is done for how much stimulus you qualify for. The last one was $1,400 per person. So you have two people in your household. You prepare your return. It says you qualify for $2,800 in stimulus. This letter now needs to be added to your tax return to show that you already received the $2,800 and your total due now is zero as far as the stimulus payments go. If you think you're clever, you think you're going to outsmart the IRS, and you put in zero, I didn't receive any stimulus payment last year. Let's see if they send me another $2,800. Your tax return goes into a special pile that'll get looked at in, I don't know, 6, 8, 9, 10, 12 months. They will not release your refund until the math error is corrected, and it becomes a manual process, and there's millions of returns from last year that are still in front of you, it really needs to be reported properly. So it goes into Brian's inbox. <laughs> if if you watch The Simpsons, there was a Simpsons episode where Homer mailed in his tax return, and when it got thrown into the bin, it went into the regular bin, which was full, and it bounced a few times, and then it landed in the bin next to it, which was the to-be-audited bin. <laughs> That's where your tax return is headed if you don't properly report your stimulus payment. Now, with the child tax credit, advanced payments, this is letter 6419. For some people, this is going to be really straightforward. Some people receive the same amount each month. And if you multiply that by six, you've got the number. But for some people, things changed. Circumstances changed. Maybe you had an additional child born and you filed your tax return late. So when they started sending out your advance payments, it was based on zero children or one or two. And then you filed your return and somewhere in the middle, your payment would have changed because now you had one additional child on your tax return. I got a good memory and I'm an accountant, so I've tracked every dollar that's come into my house. I'm not worried about mine, 
But I know how a lot of people keep track of their money. They open up their bank app, and it says, I still have money in my account, and they keep going. They don't worry about it. They don't worry about it. So these people really need to keep track of this. Now, from a tax return perspective, the amount of the child tax credit has changed for this tax year that we're filing right now. If you have children under five, the child tax credit used to be $2,000. It's now $3,600. Wow. You would have received an advanced payment of $1,800. So when you file your tax return, you would still get the other $1,800. So last year you got $2,000. Now you're going to get $1,800, $200 difference, but you already got $1,800 in your pocket. If your children are over age five, the $2,000 tax credit is now $3,000. And theoretically, you've already received $1,500 in advance payments. So you file your tax return. Instead of getting a $2,000 credit, you'll get the other $1,500 credit. So there's a $500 difference there, but you've already received $1,500. So everybody's coming out ahead when you look at the big picture. If you're just looking at your refund, some people's refunds may go down just based on the advanced child tax credit payments. So my child's over five, and I didn't get anything. Yeah. Your child kind of falls outside of the upper (laughs) threshold. Um, Okay, fine. (laughs) I get it. Pretty sure he's graduated from college and moved on and has a job. And yeah, Yeah, he's over the age of being considered a child for tax return purposes. Okay, rub it in. So, <laughs> so okay, what about um, this marketplace insurance for 2022? It's on here, and I don't know anything about that. What are you talking about? Okay, let's take a deep breath. <gasps> if you buy health insurance through the marketplace, and this has lots of terms, I refer to it as marketplace Some people call it Obamacare. What's happening is you are buying insurance through an insurance company. You're not buying it through the government. There's just an intermediary that helps to determine the amount of your premiums. But you're still buying from Blue Cross or Cigna or one of the other companies. The healthcare is set up so that your insurance premiums are based on your income and your premiums cannot exceed a certain percentage of your income. Now, obviously, the lower your income, the higher the subsidy amount is, um, and that changes once you get to 400% of the federal poverty level, then historically your subsidy phases out. Um, So here's an example. If you have a family of four that earns $60,000, they would be... 226% of the federal poverty level and their maximum annual premiums would be $4,434. Now, if you have a family of four and you're paying for insurance, you know that it costs more than that. So if their premiums were $1,000 a month, the taxpayer would pay $369.50 a month and then the government would subsidize the rest of that. There's this huge misconception on how health insurance premiums work, and that's the basics of it. So for 2021 and 2022, the numbers have changed. The percentages have changed. 
that same family of four at 60000 of income, their annual premiums would be capped at $1,800. So their out-of-pocket cost to insure their family would be $150 a month, and the government's going to subsidize whatever exceeds that amount. So if their premiums were still $1,000, the government's going to pay 850 as a subsidy. The taxpayer is going to pay $150. And that's taxable income. It's not taxable income because okay. it's deemed to be a tax credit, and tax credits aren't taxable income to you. Okay. So right there for that person, for an average household of four people with sixty thousand, with marketplace insurance, they just saved two thousand six hundred and thirty-four dollars in premium costs for this year. Now, for twenty twenty-one and twenty twenty-two. There's this interesting provision. If you qualified for unemployment for either one of those years, your income is deemed to be 133% of the federal poverty level for purposes of calculating the subsidy. And at 133%, your premiums cannot exceed 0% of your income. And... Hopefully we're all on the same page. Zero percent of your income means your premiums can't exceed zero dollars. So if you're on unemployment last year or this year and you have marketplace insurance, the government will subsidize 100 percent of your insurance premiums if done properly. So if you're on marketplace insurance right now and you're collecting unemployment, you should be talking to your insurance broker about getting your premiums changed if you're paying money right now because it's it should be zero wow that's so if you're pretty still, remarkable you're still paying $800 a month and trying to figure out how you're going to pay for insurance the rest of the year that's your solution okay let's talk about charities charities okay what what if somebody makes a donation to a charity as an in-kind donation when that charity writes that thank you letter, like the auction, we had an auction. Somebody donated something. They said it was worth $450. The auction, it sold for $200. When I write that thank you letter, what number do I put on the thank you letter? 200 or 450 So that gets into a complicated area. And what we have to look at is, was the $400 realistic? Okay. If the $400 wasn't realistic and that was just their guess, then it would really be what it sold for. Um, if they had an appraisal done, they have appraisal paperwork on their end, then they would use the appraised value. Okay. But if I donate, it's no different than if you donate a car or a boat or something to charity. Historically, you'd put on your tax return whatever you wanted. Okay. I donated a car and it was worth $10,000. Man, it was worth $150 on a good day. <laughs> um, That's some kind of car. <laughs> so years ago that got changed and you do not take a deduction on your tax return until that car or boat is sold. And then the charity would send you a letter back that said, hey, we sold your car for $150. That's your deduction amount. So in this case, if they donated something at 400 it sold for two, their value for donation purposes, is $200. So what's changed with the charity contribution? So for 2021, we had a small change in 2020, and this allowed everybody to deduct $300 
in charitable contributions, whether you itemized or not. For 2021, they sort of got their act together and said, hey, if you're single, it's still 300 But if you're married filing jointly, it's $600. Yay. Thanks for doing basic math, Congress. So if you're filing a single tax return and you've made qualifying charitable donations, you can deduct up to $300 in addition to your standard deduction. And if you're married filing jointly, you can deduct up to $600 in this charitable is contributions. federal or state? This is federal. Okay. Um, there's 50 states and there's 50 different sets of rules. Okay. I guess there's nine that don't have taxes. So there's 41 different sets of state rules. We don't have time to cover that. <laughs> no, I, we don't. And I'm I'm wondering, are you going to be able to come back and, and do a show like maybe in February? I'm sure people are sitting there going, I have questions. And yeah. if you have questions, you can send them to me, and we'll just schedule Mark for another show to just answer questions. Yeah. Your questions. Um, it's important to note here. The deduction, everything's a maybe. Everything's a maybe. Uh, <laughs> if it's taxes, the answer is maybe. The deduction is limited to cash, such as cash, checks, credit cards, um, any type of payment like that. The donations cannot be in the form of goods, and they cannot be made from donor-advised funds. Donor-advised funds are different. You take a donation when you make the f- contribution to the donor-advised fund, not when the money comes out. Okay. I think. That's probably a separate topic that we yeah. talk about some other. It's <laughs> a great strategy for reducing your taxes, but it's not for everybody. Okay. I want to get back to Brian. Are you still there? Are you sleeping? I am. Just, oh. <laughs> I am just soaking in this information. Mark's full of great information. Yeah, he is. So I want to ask you, if somebody gets called and you want to audit them, how do they prepare for that audit besides sweating and sleepless nights and drinking a lot? <laughs> they should call Mark first. Yeah, I mean, it's if you have a, a paid return preparer, and 55% of Americans do, and you did receive an audit letter, the first person I'd call is the person that prepared it and say, hey, I've, I've never done this before. Can you help me out? And as long as they are um, licensed to practice before the IRS, so they need to either be an, a, a, um, a tax attorney, a CPA, or an enrolled agent, or they can be with you in person, like next to you. But like someone like Mark, he's an enrolled agent. He, he can actually go and represent you before the IRS, and you don't even have to go there. So that's what I would do. I mean, that's the best thing about having a – paid return preparer is if an issue comes up with your tax return, you can send someone else who is much more comfortable and much more knowledgeable than you are. So that's what that's where I would start, Sherry. Yeah, we're and not so talking Mark, about Guido. We're talking about somebody who's authorized. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mark and what I mean, do you do you represent your clients as well or do you have someone else do that? No, we do. And I from a strategy perspective Step one is there's a taxpayer bill of rights, and you have the right to retain representation. And we look at this in the same way as you would look at this for a court of law. Like, only a fool represents themselves. We work through this process a lot. We deal with the IRS very frequently. We know how the process works, and we know what information needs to be presented. And... 
the real problem, we aren't going to invite you. Don't take offense, but we aren't going to invite you to the audit because most of the time people want to start talking and telling stories. <laughs> and the yeah. difference between me and Brian here is I represent the taxpayer. I don't represent the IRS. So if the IRS is auditing A, we're only going to talk about A. We're not talking about B, C, or D. And taxpayers want to, let me explain. Just let me ex- talk about this real quick. Nope. Don't say anything. Okay. We've got a caller who wants to know about PayPal. Rick, what's your question? So um, thanks to uh, the our Congress that's always taking care of us, they've changed the rules. I believe it was um, – $20,000. So if somebody sold sold on PayPal above $20,000, they got a 1099. I believe PayPal was the same. So it's not much of a change. It's just a slight change. It's $600 now. Yeah. So yes. if you get PayPal, yeah. so if you sell something on Craigslist, if you sell something on Craigslist, a couch that you paid $1,500 for for $600, $610, and depending on the method of payment, right? Now you get a 1099. So the same thing on eBay. If you're an old person and you're trying to downsize and get rid of a collection you had, now um, and maybe you're selling it for 25% because younger people don't collect things. You let's say you collected trains. You have a big train set. Now as you try and liquidate your train set for pennies on the dollars, you get a 1099 for it. So uh, can you enlighten me? You 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 gentlemen are the professionals. Is, uh, do, what can you tell me about this and um, is it? I mean, it's not much of a change. It was twenty thousand. Now it's six hundred. So that that makes perfect sense to me. Thank you, Congress. Um, I appreciate it. So basically, on this, other than the dollar threshold, nothing has changed. If you sold something for pick a price, six hundred and one dollars for the sake of this conversation, under Internal Revenue Code Section sixty one, you have a reporting requirement. So now we have to get back to, are you in the business of selling things or is this a one-off item? And so where we end up with is, hey, I got this item. I got a couch. I paid $2,000 for the couch and I just sold it to somebody for $600 and now I have a 1099. Historically, that should have been reported. The $600 is not taxable income because your basis in the property is $2,000. So this is going to land on schedule uh, form 8949. You're going to put in your basis of 2000 You're going to put in your sales price. You have a loss of $1,400, but that is a non-deductible loss, and I believe it's code L on that form that says it's a non-deductible loss for other reasons because it's selling personal property. So historically, this stuff should have all been reported, and I know it wasn't. I know it, most people have ignored this. So really all that's happened is more people are getting wrangled in to filing stuff that should have been filed all along. And I know it sounds like a pain in the butt, but that like historically when you sold stuff and received money, it, it always should have been reported. But I know that in the real world, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because... Yeah, if you have a yard sale, that's yeah. income. Yeah. Okay. It's income, but you have deductions to offset it, so it's not ta- it doesn't create a taxable event for you. It just re- requires that reporting event to happen. So with this, people are going to receive 1099Ks from these companies, and then you just have to determine what happened. Are you in the business of doing something? Then it needs to be reported on a business schedule. Were you selling a few personal items? 
then it just lands usually on form 8949 of you disposing of a capital asset. Okay, we only have a few minutes left. I have I hope that answered your question, Rick. Uh and thank you for listening to the show. We are going to be scheduling Mark to come in to answer your questions, tell your friends, get your questions ready, and we'll just bombard him. He'll wish he had a different <laughs> job. <laughs> I want to know, um, Brian, is the IRS hiring and, and what are the, we have two minutes, what are the uh, criteria for getting hired by the IRS? Yes, so we are going to be hiring. We're going to be hiring I know for sure for the special agent job, and that's what I do. We had an announcement last month. We have another one that's coming out in January. What we're looking for is U.S. citizen under the age of 37 with a degree with 15 units of accounting, nine closely related. Um, pretty Take any majors, but we're looking for people who want to do what I do, investigate tax fraud and money laundering. But I also anticipate the IRS hiring revenue agents and revenue officers. And what do they do? And, and basically, so revenue agents are the professional auditors for the IRS. They don't audit financial statements. They audit tax returns. And then the revenue officers are the IRS employees who collect on the assessments, the tax due and owing determined by the revenue agent. So they work with the taxpayers to get them on a payment plan get them back in the system, figure out, you know, why are they behind on their payroll taxes or their income taxes. And then there's all kinds of other positions as well. So if anybody's interested in working for the IRS, you can go to usajobs.gov, and all these positions will be posting in 2022. In January, you said? I mean, like shortly? Yeah, we're expecting the special agent position to open up in in January, later on this month. And so we've been... We do a lot of recruiting at the University of Arizona, at ASU, Grand Canyon. So we've been making the rounds like usual, just trying to get students interested in a in a federal career. Job job career? What do they call them? Job fairs? Is that what you do? Do you job go to fair. job fairs? Um, sometimes if they're free, <laughs> we have to <laughs> try to do free stuff. But typically we do a lot of events on campus at University of Arizona, career panels, meet the firms. Different events, uh, I do a lot of speaking to classes, tax classes, and things like that. Um, we're trying to reach out to criminal justice majors as well. But we can get on campus for free because we have a story to tell and we have a job to, to sell as well. Well, I want to thank you for everything that you do. And congratulations on busting a few people and putting them in jail. <laughs> and congratulations to Mark for keeping all his clients out of jail. <laughs> He's going, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we will be announcing when, when Mark's coming back to answer your tax questions. If you've got some tricky questions and if you've got illegal activities, don't forget to report that income. They are coming for you if you don't. Right, Brian? Yes. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. <laughs> thanks, Brian. Thanks, Mark, and Thank we'll you. shop local, stay safe. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Sherry asking you to tune in to Law Matters Live Show every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, we talk with Crime Stoppers International and our local reps with 88 Crimes. Get your questions ready and call in at 790-2040. Please support the Law Matters 1030 Challenge at lawmatters1030.org. All of us at Law Matters, thank you for your support. Your generosity truly makes a difference. Law Matters Podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org.